It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. In this episode, we are going to hear from John Bramblett, who is an artist that I became aware of through a mutual friend of ours. And as it turns out, John lives just a few miles from where I live in the Dallas area, which just reminds me of how small a world it is and just how many fascinating people there are out there if you just really start looking for them. John is an artist, a painter, so I started checking out John's paintings um, at his website, which is bramblet.com, and we'll also have a link in the show notes and on the website to that and his Instagram account and some other places where you can see some of John's work. And if you get a chance to see it, you really will be amazed at just how brilliant his paintings are. And they have been shown or sold in over 120 countries. So John kind of knows what he's doing. And I'm real interested to talk to him about how he does what he does. And I've heard him talk about music and colors and just really a lot of different facets of, of what he does, as well as uh, a vision loss story that has some similarities to mine, in particular the time in our lives that those uh, things happen to us. So I don't know, I could go on and on, but it's probably just best to hear it from John himself. So with no further ado, I introduce the great John Bramlett. Thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast, John. Oh, John, <laughs> the great John. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. I, I, um, man, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I think you are great. I've seen, I mean, you're an artist. You're a, you're a painter, specifically, and I have seen some of your work, and uh, it is tremendous. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I just I, I just try to paint so so that I don't go c- completely nuts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if that's working, then I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> well, if that hasn't happened yet, then I'd say you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, but as as everybody is, there are some uniquenesses about you, and something that that I was fascinated by, uh, being being visually impaired myself, I I ran into you from a buddy of mine, uh, Blake Lindsay down at a Envision Dallas, and he's like, you got to check out this John Bramley guy. Uh, he is an extraordinary painter, and I guess the the crazy thing is, if if that's how you want to say it, he, he he's blind, he's totally blind, and I was like, wow. Let me uh, check this out. And so I did. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you because I want to talk to you about painting and how you do that and all the colors and all the things that you do. But just so we kind of have a baseline of understanding here, I want to talk a little bit about your vision first. What is your what is your vision loss story, John? Oh, man. Uh, oh, well, you know, I want to say, too, that, man, that, that was so cool of Blake, Blake to say that. He is such a nice guy. He is. He is. He's awesome, man. And, and, and I know that you did the interview with him. So so I'm gonna go back in the podcast because I missed I missed the one that you did with him, so I'm gonna have to go. It's in get, there. It's get, a good one. Give yeah. it a less listen, but um, yeah, I I um, you know the the whole the whole vision loss thing was sort of a surprise. I I was born with epilepsy, and I had it since I was two years old, and it just got worse. And then I had some other other problems, other health problems, where I had like um, I had to have a kidney removed by the time I was seven, and had had some neuro, neurological problems, and then. Ended up getting Lyme's disease, you know, later. And this was a long time ago, like over 20 years ago. And when I got the Lyme's disease and, and we weren't really looking for Lyme's disease down here. So it was just, it was just re- wreaking havoc with the epilepsy because 
you know, my doctors weren't looking for any other problems. I had plenty. So some of, some of my neurologists were just trying to get the seizures under control and they didn't know why they weren't, you know, but the, the Lyme's disease, I guess, since it went on, you know, it went untreated for so long, it was just causing a lot of problems, but it just made it where I was, um, either the treatment, all the, all the cocktails of, of, of drugs that you have to take for epilepsy, especially if, if you're not able to get it under control. And I was like, I was just getting bigger and bigger seizures. But I was starting to have these seizures where when I would have a massive seizure and my, and my vision would get blurry. But my neurologist and my family, you know, none of us really thought of it as a vision problem. You know, we just saw it as a seizure problem. You know, if we yeah. get these, you know, if we get these dang seizures under control, then, you know, I'm good to go. But, um, but then it, it kept on. And then even when I, when I was in college, it just kept getting worse and worse. And then they finally found that I had had the Lyme disease. But before that, um, I started having these seizures where um, they were just massive, and um, you know, where I, where my breathing would stop, my heart would stop, and that, that that was that was causing damage to my brain. And it was it was having I think they called it a cascading tem- temporal lobe seizures. And they and my neurologist said it was just like getting hit in the back of the head, like in the occipital lobe, over and over again. And and I ended up losing my eyesight and and about forty percent of my hearing. But it was kind of quick, like it. Well, it went slow at first, like I, it, like um, in two thousand one, it um, gosh, two thousand one is that right? I'm, I'm horrible when it comes to dates and and and, and time. So if I'm off by six months or a year, I apologize. Okay. And then like a month later or two months later, they measured it again, and it was like twenty over eight hundred, and then it was just ramping up, and then that that was like in an April of two thousand one, I believe, and then during the summer, like it, it got to the point where. I forget what the measurement was, but it was something crazy. It was like 20 over like 3,600 or some crazy number. And then that, that, that was the last me- measurement that they really kind of got. And then after that, um, I didn't have any u- usable vision, but, but I still have light perception and, you know, whatever I lost my eyesight, I didn't know anything about blindness. Like I, I, all, all I knew is what you learn from TV and movies. So, you know, I didn't know anything because <laughs> TV and movies are awful. For, for the most part, when it comes to it, especially 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, they sure are. I, I kind of have a similar experience with my vision loss uh, occurring in college. So that was something else that was uh, I thought was pretty pretty interesting, although different um, than you, uh, same kind of time frame in life or whatever. So if I understand what you just said there, it was over maybe like, say, a four to six month time period is when things really dramatically changed for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even though I was having this terrible trouble with my vision, like it was, I was still going to classes, but like I, I would, you know, it, but it was weird because I, I, I could recognize a friend maybe 75 feet away. And then it got to where I could, I could only recognize them maybe 50 feet away. And then it got to the point where if I was trying to cross the street, I would look both ways and I, w- I would look and look and look, and then I would step into the street and suddenly there'd be a car there and it'd be like, where in the world did that Whoa, car come from? Yeah. And, and then that's when I, you know, I, I figured, well, I, I've got to go to an eye doctor or somebody because I, I was only going to my neurologist and, um, and they sent me to, to, to a low, a low vision specialist and they were running all these tests and stuff. And that's finally when, when I had someone say that, that, you know, they, they did that first test where it was 20 over 400 and, and after about two weeks of doing these tests and stuff, it, you know, she said, you know, it's, um, you know, the prognosis isn't good. It's just going to get worse. And. And she said, you really need to start learning O&M now. She said, because it'll be a little easier if you know why you have vision. And she said, because I, you know, I re- it looks like you're going to be, you know, she doesn't see, she said she didn't see it getting any better. 
and she really felt like it was just going to keep getting worse. And I felt like I was just, just got punched in the stomach. You know, even though I'd had these vision problems, I really thought I'd go to the doctor and they'd have like a magic pill or, you know, or they'd, they'd be able to, I don't know, do, do something about it. Or they, you know, they, they'd fix the seizures, you know, but I'm really curious, John, because um, you lost your eyesight in college as well. And I know for me that, that actually, that, that, that was probably one of the biggest things that really helped me was that at the time when I lost it, every, everything was kind of set to, um, to try to keep you in school. And I was already enrolled with the office of disability at my college for, for, for the epilepsy. So, so I, I thought I had to leave school. Like I thought losing my eyesight, I thought, you know, I had no idea. I thought everything mm-hmm. was kind of over. And I went by the office of disability and it was like, you know, I told them, well, not, you know, they told me my, my eyesight's terrible and, and it's not going to be getting better. It's just going to be getting worse. And, and, and yeah, I was basically going to say goodbye. And they were like, well, heck no, you know, there's so much out there. The, like, you know, you know, the, the accommodations, the, the adaptations, the, the orientation, mobility, all the, everything. They said, it's just crazy. The technology. Yeah, it incredible. was, uh, it was really good. Uh, it would of course be better today, the technology part of it, but in the uh, late night 98 for me, and I think in the early two thousands for you, the, um, Texas commission for the blind and all the, there, there were a lot of resources on campus. After I got back to school, I, I was, I had left school after my illness for about, uh, six months. And when I got back, I, I had a meeting with the provost of the school, oh. which I was like, <laughs> there's really only two reasons why I'd be going there. One, I'm, I'm, they're going to tell me I can't stay anymore because, uh, your grades aren't good enough, buddy. Uh, or he just wanted to meet with me and, and just kind of make sure, I mean, it was, they, they asked me to come see him and to make sure that I, you know, knew what was going on and how to get what I needed and accommodations and how, how, uh, open they were to any, anything that I needed and, and wanted to know, you know, all the things that, that, that they were helping me succeed basically, which, which sounds like kind of like what, what you're saying. And I knew none of that existed prior to any of that. I knew nothing. And I was, I was, it was pretty amazing all of the opportunities that were there um, that I had really paid no attention to before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just saying I was the same way. I, I went to college right out of, out of high school and I, I had severe epilepsy then. And I, I didn't go to the office of disability or anything. Like I, you know, I, I had no idea about it and I was having the seizures and I would miss a week or two of school and I wouldn't tell anybody that I had epilepsy or seizures. Like I just didn't know how to deal with it. And so I wouldn't tell my teachers and I would miss, a, I'd have really good grades. Then suddenly I'd be gone for two weeks and I'd come back, you know, and, 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 and school just wasn't working. So I, I thought, well, school doesn't work for me. And then I left and then, you know, and then, and then, so, so I love computers. So I worked with computers and stuff for a while. And then I thought, man, if I don't go back to school now, I just never will. So I went back, but the first place I went was the office of disabilities. And that was the best thing that I did. And I, I think a lot of people don't know, what, what, what's available at a university. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's absolutely incredible. And like the first year or year and a half that, that I was taking classes, like I, I, I someone would help me find that my class, I would have a sighted guide. Um, and I was still learning like jaws and, and, and all, you know, all the, all the stuff that you need to learn to be able to do school. Um, so I was just getting incomplete in my classes. So I would go into all these classes and just sit there and, the upside of that, though, is you don't have any homework. So that's kind it of a good upside. That's <laughs> nice. But then, and then later you make up all the tests and everything. So I was able to make all that up. But, you know, but man, we're, we both have a visual impairment, but we're both different. 
And that, that's something that I didn't realize whenever I first lost my eyesight that, you know, I just, I just learned from TV shows that if you're blind, you walk around like Frankenstein, you know, you don't really know what's around right. you. You can't yeah. really relate to anything. And, um, and, and blindness is all the same for everyone, which is just completely untrue. It's a huge, you know, it's a spectrum. And there's some people that are visually impaired that can still drive a car. There's some people like you that can ride a bike, which is awesome. I couldn't really ride a bike when I was sighted. I would still run into things. But, um, but I, I, I like to, to, to kayak. But at least with a kayak, you're going so slow. If you run into a tree, you just kind of bounce off. You know, just slowly bonk, bonk. Yikes. But, yeah. You know, but it's it's just a thing. There's some people who are blind that can read, some that can't. Like for me, uh, light really hurts my eyes. So I always wear sunglasses. Like for some reason, my brain is telling my eyes like to dilate, dilate, constrict, do all these crazy things and let in all this light. And it just gives me headaches. Yeah. So that's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other people who the light doesn't hurt them at all. So you'll see visually impaired people that wear sunglasses. You'll see them that won't, you know, and it's, and I can see where it could be very con confusing for people who don't know anything about blindness, you know, and, you know, you see one person with a visual impairment right, right by with a bike. You see another guy, you know, he's using a guide dog, you know, and you see somebody else and they're reading a book, but they can't drive a car. You yeah, know, it just wrong. doesn't make any sense to most people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, that's why we're doing the podcast here. And, there you go. Uh, having these types of discussions <laughs> just to help kind of educate people. And, and, and a lot of it's really to educate myself and uh, continue to adapt. And just going back to college for a minute, I imagine there was a, a lot of adaptation necessary for you once you're once you're there with the, the, the total vision change, was that, was that something that was difficult to, to work with? Oh man, I, I was, you know, it's funny cause I was doing everything that I was supposed to. Like I was, I was, I was, I was learning, I was learning Braille. So, so I only learned Braille one, Braille, Braille one's all that I use. And I only use that to be honest for my paints in my studio and for, and for like cards and stuff. So like, if we're going to play poker to Texas Hold'em, then I use Braille and <laughs> I use Braille for that. But mm -hmm. everything else is, is screen readers, you know, like for my phone, my computer, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like I went from being a very um, independent, like being able to leave my apartment and go wherever I wanted to suddenly Every time I stepped foot outside the door, I was getting, you know, bumps and scrapes. I would fall, you know, I'd fall over something. I'd knock somebody down. You know, you just went to needing help to do everything. And, you know, you're a college age person. You're going to college and suddenly you're an adult, you know, and you're going to school. But then you've got to ask somebody to, to show you where the bathroom is, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and it's just a sudden complete change. You know, whenever you sit down to eat in like maybe you're at the cafeteria, you're at a restaurant or something and. They, they might put bread on, on your table or chips or this or that or the salt somewhere. I, you know, it's, it's, it's so much to learn how to, how to navigate all of that. And, and, and like in the kitchen, I love to cook. And I didn't re realize when I was sighted how many sharp, pointy, pokey things there are in a kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> <But> it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but now, like for my family, my wife, she's a great cook, but she doesn't enjoy cooking. And I like to cook. So for the family, I'm the cook. I cook every night. And oh, Chef John, okay. Well, you know, I, I, I didn't say I was good at it, <laughs> but I like, I like to try, you know, um, so I, you know, I give it, I give it a good try, but it, it's fun though. But it's funny though. Cause like, you just have to learn everything. And I was doing everything right. Like I was doing everything that they tell me I should do. And, and, you know, and so just in my mind, you know, so, so cerebral, so cerebrally, I was thinking, well, you know, you're going to be a great blind guy. You know, you're doing everything they, they tell, they tell you. But inside, though, I, I was it didn't help at all with 
like the anger. It didn't help with the depression. I just didn't have any hope. I didn't say any of this was actually going to make a difference, you know, to, to, to life, you know, I mean, I didn't see where it would, you know, I don't know. I just didn't have any hope for the future really. So even that first year while I was learning orientation mobility, I was learning how to use a white cane. I was learning how to trail walls, how to, how to do all these, you know, all, all, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and by the end of the year, I could, I could leave my apartment and I could find the university, you know, sort of a progression, you know, I could cross the streets, which would, you know, would, would leave me kind of sweating because all the car sounds and all this, but I would, I learned how to get across safe and all that. Then I could find the university and then I could find the university and find the right building and then find the right classroom and then finally find my right seat. And I had it, you know, I, I could, I, I could actually travel and, and, and get around even so a year later I, I, I could get around, but inside I was still just, I didn't, I didn't even realize how angry I was. Yeah. There's, there's likely some dark time in there. I think for everybody that goes through really any kind of change and, and the more dramatic, probably the deeper and darker that place gets. But I think, you know, a lot of people in life have to deal with, with things, you know, nothing happens really exactly how we plan it all the time. So that's one of the key things is these mental health check-ins and, and your support system and friends and family and, and people just to, just to be near you. So I imagine you benefited from that as well. Oh man. You know, I mean, one, one thing that helped, I think was having so many health problems when I was a kid, I was in and out of hospitals, just my whole childhood. I, I was, I was either in the hospital or on homebound half, half, half of high school. But my friends that I had, like in my family, like nobody ever treated me like I was sick or, I had, you know, you know, it, I mean, I had a wonderful support system and, you know, my parents were always like, yeah, go, you know, go for it, you know, for every, I mean, they, I, it, it's, you know, but I don't know, but there's also like, it's funny to say, but there's also a, um, another side to that. So it's great to have people that are so supportive that love you so much. But in college, I, I, you know, it was, I felt like that, that, that was my time to really like fly in a way, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I wanted to make everybody proud, you know, I mean, not, I mean, I mean, not that they ever wouldn't be, but I mean, I don't know. It's just, you know, like you, you want, you want, especially when you come from a family that loves you so much, you know, you don't want to be a burden on them. And I was so afraid that when I lost the eyesight, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, I don't want to be like the sick kid that I was, you know, as a kid, the sick person on my whole life, you know, that's always going through these health problems. And it just made me feel really depressed. And, and, um, but you know, a weird thing is, is that at first I thought, I thought my eyesight made, made me different from everybody else. But it's just, it's just like you were saying a minute ago, John, about like, everybody's going, goes through something like, I mean, everybody in life has something that's bigger than they are. And you try to go through it, you know? And so I think with the eyesight loss, like it made me more, more like everybody else, you know, because we all have that one thing in our life that we just have to face. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a true believer in, in that kind of sentiment. I, I, from what I've heard from you and, and kind of what I'm picking up from you on you here is I think it's a lot of it is about mindset and mind frame. And you appear to be a pretty positive guy. You, you appear to be a glass half full. We'll figure things out, kind of take that approach to things, which is pretty much the way I like to do things too. And, um, you know, because for me, there's nothing that's going to change my vision anytime soon and maybe not at all. So we can, we can sit around and waller about that, or we can try to figure out some adaptations or some things to, to keep moving forward. And that's kind of the way I try to do things. Um, sometimes it's harder than others, but, um, that's kind of how I do it. And and it sounds to me like you're the kind of the same way. Well, man, I, you know, I, (laughs) I'm much happier now (laughs) than I'd like that, that, that first year, the first two really, 
But one of the, the, the thing that really helped me, you know, I, I had a great support system, you know, emotional support from, from my family, but, but art though, it was huge for me. And when I, when I was a kid, I think I could draw before I could walk. If I was having a bad day, if I was in a hospital or something, you know, something's going wrong, I, I would draw. And um, I'm a huge nerd, so I learned every kind of drawing that I could. I took every class, read every book. You know, I learned learned how to how, how to do how to do the the drafting for like a house, how to do the blueprints, how to how to draw port, portraits, how to do cartooning, um, any anything that had anything to do with drawing, I, I I tried to learn. But on a bad day, art is brilliant because while while you're drawing or while you're creating something, you you can't think about anything in your past. You can't worry about the future. You're, it puts you in the moment. So it's like taking a little vacation. And then on a good day, art's a great way to celebrate a good day. So it's, it's a way to make your day better. It's so a, it's a win-win sounds like it is. I, I literally drew every day. Like it in, I, it, I never thought about making my career art. It was just what, what I did. And, you know, like I, I would do other things, but art was just sort of what I did every day. I always had a pad, always had, you know, the charcoal, always had crayon, you know, crayons, pencils, pens, whatever. And, um, and it, it was just how I thought really, like even in like English, if I had to write a paper, I would draw it out first and then, and then, and then, and then I could write the, the essay or Interesting, whatever. Yeah. Now, do you have any of those old drawings? My, you know, my mom does, um, she doesn't throw out a whole lot. So, so she has some of that old stuff, but, um, yeah, but you so know, maybe maybe some of those can be turned into paintings. Maybe so. Gosh, I maybe so. I I don't. Hmm. That's 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 an idea. You know, most most of the paintings. Well, the paintings that I do now is kind of taken from the present. Maybe you know, but that's 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 an that's an idea. Maybe maybe I could do a, a re- retrospective or something <laughs> one of these days. Well, how did the transition from drawing to painting happen, or when did that happen? It happened after I lost my eyesight because whenever, whenever um, I drew, whenever I was sighted, I only do, I only did like black and white and gray drawings. I never did color and I never painted because I just didn't think I would be a good painter, but I revered painters. I loved painters. You know, you know, you know, the way, the way some people will follow a sports team and they'll follow like football and they're in, and they're, they're like the armchair quarterback and, and they'll say, Oh, you know, they should have done this, should have done that. I, I was I was a nerdy kid. Um, I'm a nerdy adult, but I was a nerdy kid. So <laughs> I, would, I would follow these painters, and I would read about like Picasso and Monet, and how how they would set up their palettes and their studios, and like oh Monet, oh, Monet he never used black. Oh, that's so weird, you know. It's, it's, you know, learn all this sort of stuff because I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was just really interesting, but I didn't think I would be a good painter, and I didn't have the courage to try to do something that I didn't think I'd be good at. Plus, I love to draw, so you know, just draw and drawing work for me. But, um, but after losing the eyesight, I thought I'd lost art forever. It didn't even occur to me, even though this was literally something I did every day of, of my life that I can remember. You know, I, I just, I thought, well, that's gone. Like, of course I can't draw, you know, it's obvious. So, um, that, that year, I mean, it was bad for losing the eyesight and everything, but by one way, which I thought I was so smart because, you know, using art to be able to deal with your problems, sounds so great. Like how in the world can you lose that? Cause if you have a scrap of paper and a broken pencil, you can still like, you know, you know, you can still like jot things down and, yeah, and make little yeah. drawings. But, but I found the one way that that doesn't work. So I lost my <laughs> sight and suddenly I was like, man, I have no way to, way to cope with all this. And I was just getting sadder and sadder and it wasn't really showing on the outside so much, but on the inside, I was just getting more and more depressed, but I was learning orientation and mobility. And basically the way that I draw 
which is that's the way I start all my paintings is drawing. It's based on orientation and mobility techniques. And those are the techniques that, that, that the, some, some visually impaired people will use if you're using a cane or if you're learning how to trail, how to get around a room by just using, using your sense of touch. It's your way of, of, of navigating and, and traveling independently. So I thought, well, my goodness, if I could leave my apartment and travel across all these streets and get to the university, you know, cross traffic and all that over, you know, past street, past street, past street, just using my sense of touch, surely you could use the same techniques to get across a canvas, you know, in, in the same way. And I thought, you know, so it's, I mean, good. It makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, and unless you're just a terrible painter, you're never going to get hit by a car. You're never going to break your (laughs) foot or anything. It's true too. So, you know, it's a much, a much easier way to do it. And so I started, I started working, you know, kind of the way that if you have a cane, you can trail a curb, you can feel the curb, you can feel the sidewalk. Well, I started drawing using lines that I could touch and feel. So I'd make a straight line. And I went from being able to do a portrait of a person, where it's like a lifelike, you know, pencil or graphite portrait, to trying to draw things like squares and circles and trying to make a perfect square and then a square, half the size of that square. And, but my brain still knew how to draw and my, my hands knew how to draw. And the only thing that I, that was lost was that connection in between that link, you know, the eyesight. But if you're visually impaired, you start learning how to use your other senses in different ways to compensate. So I started learning how to use my sense of touch to kind of bridge the gap and do the work that my eyes used to do. So I can draw that line and I can touch it. I can feel it. Then I can draw another line and then I can touch it and I can feel it. So, you know, if you're a sighted artist, you really only use your eyes for a couple of things. Like you use your eyes to know where you are on the canvas. You know, because you can see where your brush is and where you are, and you can see everywhere that you've been. Well, if you're visually impaired, you use your, your you know, if you're with the type of visual impairment I have, then you use your, your touch for that. So you, I can feel the raised paint of everywhere that I've painted or the paint that feels different. It's tacky or this or that, you know, but it feels different. You can touch it. So I can feel where I've been and I can feel where I am. So you kind of, you know, you've sort of solved that whole vision problem thing. Okay, so. Kind of start me from the beginning here. I, I, I think I we're kind of going here on the creative process. Just kind of back <laughs> up. Where, where do you where do you get the inspiration for your pieces or things that you're going to paint? Well, I, I get them from my mind, and um, you know, it's funny. One of the things that that I and I I'm obsessed with the idea of perception, and I quickly became obsessed with that right as I was losing my eyesight. But but then when you start thinking about how our brains really work and what perception is, it makes complete sense. Like if you're sighted and you dream, you're the part of your brain. You no, know, it's when you're sleeping, you're dreaming, all these dreams, they feel real. Everything you're seeing in your dream seems completely real. You know, you can wake up and you're like, Oh my goodness, what just happened? You know, cause it, just, it felt like you were there, mm-hmm. but that's because it's the same part of your brain that, that, that puts those, what you're seeing up is when you're awake. And your brain's like a computer. It doesn't really care where it's getting the information from. So if your eyes are sending information back, back to that part of the brain, well, then it'll, it'll take that information and then it'll form it into pictures. So your eyes aren't really making the pictures. It's just sending some information back. Then that part of your brain will process it and it'll make pictures. Pulling from your memory and other things and all this sort of stuff. There's like 12 different centers of your brain that, that activates, that actually puts together what it is you're seeing. And none of it involves your eyes except for that very first step of the light hitting and coming in. Um, so, so whenever you're imagining something, you're still using every part of that brain, except for the light, you, you don't, you just don't use the light coming in. So it's all very, very similar. So whenever I'm thinking about something that I'm, I want to paint, 
It's exactly the same way that a visual, that a person who is sighted, a sighted artist would do it. So, I, I, you know, so I don't know if that makes sense to people or not, but it's, um, so it's really, it's the same way of the, the brain. The only thing that's different is that I'm just using my hands, but I try to use things from, from the here and now. Like I, so when I first started painting and it, well, even to this day, I, I wanted to paint re- re- realistically because I noticed one thing when, when my site went, people seem to not know what a person is blind, what, what, what they understand, what they get, you know, like, you know, so, you know, they're always explaining something like maybe my aunt will come in. I've known her my whole life. And she'll say, Hey John, yeah, this is your aunt Donna. And I'll, and I'll go, I want, I know it's you aunt Donna. Like, I've known you my whole yeah. life. You know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so they don't really, really realize what, what it is you understand. So I wanted to be able to paint realistically so I could show people like, Hey, I'm still John in here. And I know I've given you this long con- convoluted answer and I, I apologize. I, you know, it's, um, um, you know, I found that I I have a lot of people who are visually impaired or friends, and I know a lot of people who are visually impaired. And I ask people like, "What's what's the most common question that you get asked?" Um, and and from from what I've heard, like from from my friends and stuff, it's always like, you know, are you really blind? Because because, because people are surprised if a person who's blind can like cross the street and find a coffee shop and then go in the coffee shop and order a coffee, and then and then go to a table and drink it. You know, they're like, my goodness, how, how can a, how, how can a visually impaired person do that? Yeah. Then they start to get a little, little, uh, skeptical of you and maybe what you've been seeing before that you haven't been leading on to, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, I get much less of that though, since, since like <laughs> the last 12 years that I've been traveling with a guide dog because I think people just think, well, well, the guide dog's making all the decisions and she, you know, she is smarter than I am, but you know, <laughs> but, 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 but we do work together, but um, but yeah, especially with a cane, you know, people are like, oh my goodness, how in the world can you use a stick to get across a, you know, a city? You know, that just, it, it sounds crazy. And then I'll do like a four story mural and I'm, I'm standing in front of it and people are like, like, well, how does that work? And I'm like, well, it's the same way that you work a stick. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's baby steps, but it's, just, it's, a, you know, it doesn't matter if you're working on a painting that's like, you know, a little tiny canvas, or if you're working on a mural, that's a giant mural, it's the exact same ideas. You know, one's just bigger than the other <laughs> and takes longer. <laughs> but that's but that's one of the things that I'm really excited about with all of this is because what what I do now when I first started, I didn't know that I didn't know that it would work. I thought I was crazy. I never thought anybody would ever see a painting of mine. The idea of ever selling a painting or any, anybody would even want a painting, it wasn't even a thought. Because I mean I mean, why in the world would anybody want that? And the idea of being a professional artist. I mean, you know, but you know, that for sure wasn't an idea, you know, I mean, cause good grief, but art was just my way of dealing with things, but it's. Yeah. Well, you certainly, you certainly have made it, but when was the point that you thought you did make it or you felt like this might work? Like, was there a series of paintings you were doing or were there, was there a time of subjects you were painting or certain things you were doing? And you're like, you know what? I think this is going to work. I think I can do this. And I like doing this. <laughs> you know, I think maybe after, after I'd been like a professional artist for like 10 years, <laughs> I think, I think it started to sink in, but okay. it was, it was sort of like a, it's a, kind of a weird thing because in college, I, like I said, I never thought anybody would want to see a painting of mine, but I, I paint 12, 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and especially at first now, because I have a 13 year old, I, I have a child that I'll, you know, the, I, you know, I might paint eight to 10 hours a day, every day, you know, and there's some days I'll paint a lot more, but, 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 but I have my life the way. So, you know, my family can be in here too, and I'll be out there. And so, so I've worked all that out, but, but at first though, 
I was just really obsessed with art and I wanted to meet other people that loved art too. So I wanted to do a show for artists. I thought that's fantastic. Like I want to meet other artists. How in the world do you find other artists? You you may find them at shows. So, so, so I did a couple of shows, but I would never tell anybody that I was visually impaired. Like I wouldn't tell people I was blind. I would go and hang the show and then go, go away. (laughs) But then I would come back and, um, and I'd eavesdrop. I'd try to hear it and see if, see if people were talking about the paintings, you know, if they hated them or if they liked them, I didn't really care which as long as long as they had an emotion. You know, that, that's the main thing. You can hate my paintings, but, you know, if you really hate them, then that's awesome. Um, but, you know, you just you just want to get that emotion. So, but, um, but after a couple, but the shows did really well. And then after a couple, um, it kind of got out that I was visually impaired. And, you know, because I was talking to artists, I got to know some people and some stories were written. And, and then some nonprofits and charities, they, they read the stories and they were like, hey, you know, this, this is really cool. Can, can you come and talk to our clients? Can, can you teach some, some of our people how to paint? So I started to go and, and, and talk to like, like soldiers that had PTSD, children who had visual impairments, ch- children, children who had autism, um, just all, just a huge gamut of, of, of people that, that had different abilities or, you know, they you know, had different needs. They, they were facing different problems. And it was the best thing I could have ever done because I didn't realize how, how, how isolated I felt. Like I, I knew that I felt pretty isolated even though I had great friends and I was in a great community and the, the people at my college were, you know, they're, they're all really nice and everything. But even if I was traveling somewhere, even if I went across the country and I was talking to, to a group of people that had a different disability than what I had, we all got each other, you know, on a really deep level. And I felt like it, it was just, it just felt like it, it was just, just gave me this warm feeling. I just felt like I was going home. So I just kept meeting these people and it was amazing. It was just this wonderful feeling. And, and museums were, were wanting to become more open and inclusive. And they heard about me going and talking to these groups. So the museums were started saying, hey, John, can, can you come and teach us how to do some workshops, to, uh, maybe train our docents, do all this sort of stuff. So I started working with museums and I started working like with the Guggenheim, the Metropolitan, Dallas Museum of Art, the Meadows, Taubman, just, just dozens of museums um, just to make them like more open. You know, and figuring out ways that the people with visual impairments can access the art and do all this sort of stuff. So we started doing that like 15 years ago. And, um, you know, and I'm still not really thinking anybody's ever going to want to see a painting of mine. That's not really the idea. It's just I'm doing this because, you know, whenever I lost the eyesight, my prognosis wasn't very good. Like my, my neurologists were like, you know, you know, dang, you know, like if you're, you're having a lot of seizures, this isn't great. You know, we don't, we don't know how long this is going to last like this. And, so, um, and I'd already lost like 40% of my hearing. I lost my vision, um, but, but they found the Lyme disease. So you know, once they were able to treat that, everything started to, to get back to normal more. Thank goodness. But at the time though, I didn't really know. I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, you never, you know, you don't know. You're kind of holding your breath to see what, you know, what's going to happen. So I was just doing things that made me feel good and that I thought um, was a positive. And art made me feel good. So I just devoted myself to trying to do as much art as I could. And I was actually able to help people. I was actually able to travel. I was able to meet people. Some of the most amazing people I'd ever met in my life. And then um, and then some galleries heard that I was working with museums. And they were like, hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Why don't you come and do a show with us? So it was the most backdoor way you could ever get into a gallery ever. I mean, like, you know, if you tried to plan it, you would never, it would never work. You know, <laughs> it would just sort of, so in... So it just so I started doing that and I started being able to do shows and I started to sell my work. And then 
And then I started working with different nonprofits and charities. And this is something I do now. I do this a ton um, where I do live painting for nonprofits and we'll, we'll celebrate and we'll do it like we'll have a gala or, you know, a lot of nonprofits and charities, a big part of what they need is fundraising. And the wonderful thing about art is that it's very positive. It's very optimistic. So it kind of worked for me to be able to go into a place and do a painting live and we could auction it off after, you know, and raise a lot of money for the charity. And, you know, and it's just, I don't know. It, it's, it, I, I fell into a career and I'm so fortunate because I haven't worked a day since, you know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, yeah. I mean, I may work 12. I mean, like, like you say, like, you know, I, I, um, I'll, I'll be painting tonight. I started painting at seven this morning and I'll be, I'll pa be painting later. Um, I, I do, I do school with my son. So I did science with him. I did some other things. We played some and, you know, and I'll go, I'll go see if he wants to do something after this. And if he doesn't, I'll be back in the studio painting, you know, cause it just makes me feel better. And I'm sorry, John, I just ramble. I get so excited about. Okay. Art I can, I, I can sense the excitement. I appreciate it. I like it. You, you have rubbed elbows with some pretty, pretty interesting people and you've been to some pretty fascinating places like George Bush, for instance, we we're both in the Dallas area and, and uh, president Bush lives here. He's a painter. Have you painted with him? No, no, you don't know, haven't painted with him. I, I, um, he gave me an award or two, but that was a while back. Like what um, I think, but um, I know I haven't painted with him. Well, how do we get that set up? Oh, I don't know. I'm down though. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely down. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm horrible about that, about that kind of stuff. I, you know, it, it's funny. Like I don't really reach out to too many people or, or things and, and um, which I need to, I need to do that. Like I'm terrible at, I'm horrible at social media. I'm, I'm horrible at reaching out for for things, but I I would love to do that though. Um, that that yeah, we should try really to make cool. that work. Yeah, man, that that would be really cool. You know, it'd be cool to work on a painting or something that we could auction off and raise some money for for a for a nonprofit. Yeah, I'll have some of my people call some of his people, and and then they'll call some of your people, and we'll see what happens. Oh man, I don't have many people. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I don't either. So. <laughs> but, <that's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but he does. Yeah, and yeah, maybe one yeah, of them will hear I'm about sure. it, so uh, we'll yeah, we'll see I'm what sure happens. People have people. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to talk to you about color too, though. Uh, color is a big thing, and like you're talking about your your pieces hanging in museums and and up for sale. So in these museums and galleries and things that where where we're trying to make it more accessible, um, along the color elements and the description elements of those types of things, do you make a, a conscious effort to have some sort of description or audio description? or textual description for your, your painting. So people in, in similar visual situations can, can experience what, what you did. Yeah, I, I, I try to, it depends on like, if it's in a gallery, then we, we definitely try to have that. And it's becoming e easier and easier to do it with the technology. You know, it's just, it's just becoming, you know, it's just incredible. I, I did a sitting with the Eamon Carter museum the other day where I went in and they, they, they asked if I would come in and, and do an audio description for some of their artwork. And, um, and they, they sent me a description of it, but it was all, it was all art, artwork that was in, incorporating sound into the painting. And that's, that's a big part of what I do. Like, like when I painted the 737, it was all because I, I listen to sound and when I hear sound, I see color. So that's a huge part of the, of, of where I get color from my painting. So, um, and I, I do try to make audio descriptions and I try to, um, incorporate that, but it's definitely something that I need to work more on because it isn't perfect. Well, art's probably not perfect anyway, and there's a lot of different ways you can look <laughs> at things, and everybody has a different different vantage point anyway. 
So there's always, there's always that too. That's true. And on my, on my website, we need to make it better because um, I have hundreds of paintings and we don't have audio description for, for them all. Like we, you know, it'll, it'll say the title of it. And, um, and I, I need to go through and do all that, but it's just, it's like, my goodness, I, it takes so long to record one audio description <laughs> and I, I know it, it's, it's so funny, but audio and stuff it, like any kind of editing like that, but, but I've got to do it. And, you know, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to be better at it because it's important. You mentioned a 737 kind of in passing. So you painted an airplane. Yeah. Well, it was, it was for the rock and Rio concert, but it was for, it was for, it was for, for, for Delta airlines. And they wanted to do a jet to, to, to like, to, to, to publicize the rock and Rio concert. It's the biggest concert on earth. And, um, it's just huge and it's in Rio, I guess. It was, so, so it's named well, the, the rock yeah, and Rio. That's a good but, name for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good name. And they, but they, they said, um, just paint whatever I wanted, but they heard that I, I use, um, sound for, for, for color. So, so they gave me all the music of the, of the people that were performing and, you know, like all, all this DJ, this and DJ that, and, um, Justin Timberlake and all these, I don't even know. It's just, it's a huge concert, but this was like five years ago, six. So whoever was big back then <laughs> in the, in history, but, um, but yeah, they just said paint whatever you want. And originally I was going to paint on the plane, but then it turns out that that's against like FAA because, because the plane goes so high and so fast, the paint would rip off. Mm. So, so we ended up instead, what I ended up doing was a really large painting on canvas that that's in the aeronautical museum they're in Atlanta where they have like air and space sort of museum thing for um, airplanes or something. And, and they made it into skins, but it took 14 people like 19 days to put the, the, the skin on the plane of wow. the painting. So I'm so glad that I didn't actually have to do the painting on the plane because <laughs> I would still be there. Like yeah. I would be like, yeah, this is, this is my, this is my lifetime painting. But, but that, that but that was fun. That, that was a fun thing to do. A 737 is on your list of things. Uh, you do murals too, huge, like big, big paintings. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done a couple of four story murals. Um, I just finished an 86 foot long and 14 foot tall mural. Um, and I'm about to go to Frisco and do a tiny mural. I think it's going to be really small, but I'm really excited about it because it's, it's for the heritage museum in Frisco. And I'm hoping, I'm thinking like, we're hoping like it'll work. Like if I can come up with a good idea, then we'll do it. If I can't, can't come up with a good idea, then I won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you get the ideas for the murals? I mean, is it based on what they ask or they give you some topics or they, do they just say paint something? It just, it just depends. Like most, most of them, believe it or not, they just say, Hey, what do you, what do you want to paint? And then, and then I'll just come up with some ideas and, and then um, and I'll say, Hey, I want to paint this. So I'm really surprised. Like if I owned a giant building, uh, let me just say, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure that I would just, you know, let somebody say, just let somebody paint what they want. Yeah, say hey, well, just just paint whatever you want out there. Make it make make it pretty or <laughs> whatever. Make it you know <laughs> use you know we want it to be cheery. We don't want it to offend anybody. All, all you know all the basic stuff and all that. But and um so so what I usually do is just come up with some ideas and then I'll I'll send them over and and then and then we'll figure it out. But but I always work the, the painting out on canvas. So so we have a whole pro process for to do murals. But but um it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. And as, as we're talking about these things, we're in an audio medium here, so um, nobody's able to, to see these things, kind of like kind of like how we are anyway. But uh, to get the visual experience of that, it's bramblet.com, right? Yes, yes. And and if anybody's on, on socials, like like Facebook, Instagram, it's just Bramblet. You know, on every, everything for me is just Bramblet. My email, if somebody has a question, 
it's bramblet at gmail so it makes it Simple. really easy yeah it makes it easy for me to remember i don't have to remember a lot of different you know names i just remember oh if i can remember my last well it's name, great when you have a go. unique unique kind of name like that that you can you can get away with that stuff which is which is great we'll have some links in the show notes and description uh for the podcast as well as some some pictures and links on on the ambiguously blind website as well but I do encourage people to go to social media or or your website and really check out some of these. I mean, they they truly are amazing, amazing pictures, and, and we could talk about them all day. And we won't we won't do them justice to to uh, people checking out to see what they look like. But back to the color thing, I want to get back on colors for a minute. You said something that was really interesting to me. You hear uh, mu- or, or when you hear music, you hear color, or I'm sorry, you see color or you hear color. What'd you say? Yeah, 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 and it's kind of the same. Like I, I, I go back and forth all the time. I'll, I'll say, "Oh, I see music," or, or I hear color. But, um, but it, it's, it's synesthesia, and I've had it ever since I was a kid. But, um, I never really thought anything about it. Um, a lot of musicians have it, but it's you know, it's the most, the most, the most common form of synesthesia is hearing or seeing color for music. But it's just you know, when whenever music plays, I see color. Um, whenever the music's playing, and, um. You know, I never really thought much about it. I thought everybody saw color with music. You know, I thought that was just part of it. But a lot of musicians do, and you get stuff. You know, you get terms like 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 the blue note, things like that. It's just, um. So in my studio, what what I what I what I try to do for a painting is it is it I start with the drawing and I try to make the drawing as simple as I can. So it's sort of abstract drawing in a way. Like if you zoom in or if you really get in and you touch my paintings, all the lines feel kind of weird. But when you take it as a whole, you, you can understand what the picture is and it seems realistic, but all of the, all, all of the feeling, all of the emotions and the ideas though, that that's color. And music is a great way to get that. You know, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you hear a song, you know, have you ever heard a song that this made you feel like really, I don't know, really happy, or maybe it's a song that yeah, you remember, like, like you went on a, like a date, like, you know, like a date with your wife or, 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 or you, you might have that special song and it just makes you feel great. Yeah. Um, there's certain songs like around the holidays, you hear it and suddenly you're at, you're in the holidays. Yeah. Like, you know, you weren't in that mo- mo- mood, but then that song comes on and there you are. Um, well, that's brilliant though, because I, I can take those feelings like from the music. And then I try to put that into my painting and I try to capture those colors. Um, which is why if you were, if anybody was to look at my paintings or, if, or have a painting of mine described to you, they're really bright. They're, <laughs> there's lots and lots of color. And part of that too is that I'm much happier now. Like the happier I am, the brighter the colors have gotten over the years. You know, at first all the colors were very dark, very dim, but I was very, I was very sad and very dark. And but, you know, art, the the artwork has just been a great way to deal with everything, and just made me feel better. So, do certain colors always have the same type of music to them? Um, like, is is red always the same? Do you see red? with certain types of music or can red vary based on what you're looking for or what you're listening to? Like, can it, can it vary at all? Or is it, is it kind of always the same? Yeah. Yeah. It very, it varies quite a bit. Like it very, it varies, a, a, you know, a ton. And, um, a lot of times like, like an F F note I get, which I've learned, I, I, I don't know music, but I've been told, <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, cause I'll, I'll do a painting. I've done paintings of a note for note for a song. And so I've been told that like a lot of times yellow for me is like an F note. Um, but it's not always that though. It depends. Like, you know, the, one of the wonderful things about music too, is that, you know, you can have one instrument or a bunch of instruments, 
Um, and, and, and they, they could be, you know, like, let's say if you're, if you're listening to New Orleans jazz and you've got the brass band that are coming in and they're all like happy and it's all, and then you got the drums coming in and, you know, and, and it's, and then the singers, you know, you've got, you've got the singer and then suddenly like, well, welcome to New Orleans, you know, and, ah, and everybody's just in the crowd starts cheering. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a lot of different colors. Um, you know, it's similar colors, but it can be very different. Let's say like, if you heard the saints go marching in with a live jazz band in New Orleans, it'll be similar colors to if you heard it on a record and it was just sort of like a, um, like, you know, like somebody playing it on piano, but it would be a very different, like it would, it would be, the colors would be very different. I mean, like colors would be similar, but the way that they're there, they wouldn't be as bright or, you know, there wouldn't be, you know, or maybe there's less mixing. It, it's hard to explain. Like, you know, and that's why I paint because I'm not very good. Ex- I'm not well, very you, good. you, you explain it uh, with the painting, right? That's your expression of the music. I sure try to. <laughs> is there a type of music that you commonly listen to for those kind of inspirations or does it vary dramatically? It really varies dramatically. You know, I, I, I love so many different kinds of music. I, I really do. I mean, from, I work with a lot of different bands where I'll, you know, I'll do paintings and, and I'll listen to their music and, um, and independent artists that you'll never have heard of and to, to people that are really well known to, you know, and, um, jazz. I, I like jazz. I didn't used to, but the colors in jazz are just beautiful in certain times. There's some that are, you know, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's weird. But <laughs> the colors are kind of crazy. And then, um, you know, but, and then there, there's, there's some modern music like, like dub dubstep. There's some of that that's really good. There there's a um, new Orleans bounce, which is sort of a rap, but it's sort of, but they have brass instruments. There's, um, I don't know. It's just what, what's, what's brilliant is that it seems like, Every every different type type of music it, it has something to offer, and especially if it's being played live, you know, like like I don't sit around and listen to to to, to like a, a mariachi band like on the radio. Like I don't put that on and just listen to it. But if I'm somewhere and there's a really good mariachi band playing live, that's a whole different thing, you know, because the 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 colors are just so sharp and crisp, and I don't know, it's just it's just a different experience. Tell me how you differentiate the colors while you're painting. So you've got all this music going and you got all these colors in your head. And of course, there are limitless colors, right? Uh, colors are, there's millions and millions of colors and shades and tones and all that. So how do you keep track of all those? Oh, man, I um, it's funny. It's It sounds like it would be really, really hard. And I actually, it does I sound like work. it would be really, really hard, John. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really <laughs> not. It's funny it does, but it's really not. And I actually, there's a workshop that I've done with thousands of people all over, in museums all over, and schools. I go to schools. So I'll do this with all the students at the schools. But it's a blind, it's a blindfold painting, and I'll, 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 I'll give people a drawing that I've made and paints that I've mixed for them. And I just did this. We just had a German film crew in here like, um, like two days ago. And, um, and the reporter lady, she wanted to, she wanted to try it. So I, like I blindfolded her and she thought, no, this is impossible, whatever. And it's just like everybody else, like five or 10 minutes in, suddenly you're like, oh my goodness. But her, like, it was like this long stream of, of German <laughs> that I didn't know what it was. <laughs> but suddenly it was like, oh man, it was like, you know, like that moment where you understand. And I love that moment because suddenly that, like, it makes a bridge between people who are sighted to the non-visual world and they understand like, Oh my goodness, there's so much more. I see why there's so much more that people who are non-visual can do. But, but basically um, with color, I, I braille my tubes, which is simple. That's easy. You know? So, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it's like on red, I, I write red. So, you know, it's a label, but 
there's there's some there's some ways to actually tell color. So um, so the most fun way is, is by actually changing the way the color feels. So with paint, um, paint is is it's really two things. Like if you really want to get simple, it's like something sticky, which which is called a medium, and then it's color, which is the pigment. So you have this medium and this pigment, the color and the sticky stuff. Well, you, there's there's different mediums you can add to the paint. So there's different, so you can make the paints feel different. So let's say if I have a white paint, there's a medium I can add to the white paint that's going to make it feel really thick and sticky, so it actually feel like toothpaste. So suddenly now, because of that medium, your white paint feels like toothpaste. Well, then I can use a different medium, and I can mix that in with my black paint and make it feel runny, runny and like oil. Like it feels just like oil. So I've got this white paint that feels like toothpaste and this black paint that feels like oil. So there's no way you're going to get the two confused. It's really easy. Even somebody that's never had any O&M training with a blindfold on can tell the thick paint is, you know, in the, from the thin paint. And if you want to mix the two, if you want to get a gray between that black and white, you can just mix for a texture that's halfway between the two and the colors halfway between. So it's a real easy way because you have 200 touch receptors on the pad of each finger that are really, really good at being able to determine viscosity, which is the looseness of something. So, you know, so the little practice, you can get really good at it. But so, but it's really easy to tell, oh, okay, that's white, that's dark, that's gray. And, you know, you know how you mentioned that there's millions of colors. So let's say like you have red, there, there's probably millions of shades of red out there. But you're not worried about the million shades of red. You're only worried about maybe the three that are going to be in your painting. So out of all the millions, you're only thinking about three. So suddenly you've, you've making that huge load really easy. <laughs> you know, okay. you've only, yeah. you have a darker red, you have the lightest red, and then you're, then you're going to have a medium red that's somewhere in between the two. And as long as you can mix for those three colors consistently, then you've got the problem solved. Mm, you know, okay. you've got, you know, so you know, well, if I want to, and, and so like, if you, if you, if you were in my studio right now and you were taking a tour around my studio, you would see 20 years of paintings. Um, starting from the very beginning where my drawings were extremely simple. Like I couldn't draw in a complete face. It would be like maybe an eye, part of a nose, part of another eye maybe. And it was like, whoa, that's it. Okay. <laughs> and it would take me a month to do that. And there's no blending on these early paintings. So there's no blending of colors. Like a yellow will go, up, will go up to the edge of where the yellow needs to be. And there's a raised line there that I drew. And then on the other side of that will be whatever color is going to be on that other side. There's no shadows. There's no blending. But over the over like the 20 years, I start learning how to use more color and you start learning how to blend a little bit, how to blend a little bit more, how to do shadows. Um, you know, it's just little baby step after baby step. Um, it, and it sounds like it would be really hard, but it, it, but here is the most brilliant thing. And I wish I could say I was so smart that I knew it would happen. But because what I'm using is orientation and mobility techniques, um, the more that you practice this sort of painting, the better your O and M gets, like the better your cane skills, the better, the bit, the easier it is for you to remember when you like put, put your fork down where, where, where your glass is, you know, the more you paint, the better you get at that. And now we're starting to, um, um, and we've actually worked with, with blind services with seven different States. So, so that in schools for the blind, they're, they're starting to teach painting to children who are coming in because I don't, every, every person I've ever met, and especially every child that I've ever met, hates the cane at first, you know, like you don't want this giant reflective stick, you know, you want to blend in with everybody else, especially if you're a kid, you don't want to stand out in school. You know, you've got this giant white stick that you're carrying, but after a while you, you start to learn how to use it. You start being able to travel independently without, without having to ask your parent, you know, Oh, I'm going to go over here. I want to do that. Like you can do it. But 
every time that they do art, every time that they paint, they're actually practicing with their cane. And it makes their O&M skills explode. I mean, like in a couple weeks, it just explodes. It's just crazy. That's interesting. Yeah. So can you tell the difference? You're talking about using your fingertips and, and that's on the painting itself. Um, I mean, I've seen you with one hand painting with the other hand kind of feeling around. Can you also feel the viscosity with the brush, what you're putting on the brush? Can you, can you tell the difference there too? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, you I can't can touch, now. you can't touch that wet paint or you're going to, you're going to have a mess on your hands literally. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, and that's one reason when I first started, it would take me a month to do a, a small painting. Like I literally I'm painting 12, 14, 16 hours a day. It would take me a month. Now I like to do a painting like that. It usually takes a day or two, but, but a big part of that is because, you know, it's just like anything. Like, you know, if you were to, you know, if you learn how to ride, ride a bike at first, you're trying to, you know, you're, you're thinking about the handlebars, you're thinking about your feet, you're thinking about where everything is, you're thinking where you're, you know, but after a while you, you're not thinking anything about it. Like you can just get on there and ride it and your brain's automatically doing it. It's kind of the same way of playing guitar or, or painting. Um, at first I couldn't tell how much paint I had on the brush. So when I painted, I had to use a, a size zero brush, which is just about as small as it sounds. It's just a tiny, tiny brush. So I would, I would get like one little dab of paint. I would feel where it needs to go. And I would like dab and I would put that there and I'd get more brush and I would put it back dab and I would try to spray, you know, put it in. And I would have to wait for it to dry. You know, I'd, I'd get as much in as I could Then I'd wait for it to dry and touch it. But over the time though, um, you start learning how to use bigger brushes and you can feel, you know, your, your sense of touch gets better. So you can feel when your brush is loaded, when it has paint and, and when it starts to run out of paint, because it starts to drag on the canvas. You start learning how to how to mix different mediums in with your paint so that your paint dries really, really fast. And um, and I have heat guns, I have fans, I have these additives for my paint so that so that whenever I'm painting, I, I can put paint on and maybe seconds later, half a minute later, that paint's dry. So I, I can go back and instantly kind of touch it. And and then you start learning on how to paint on one area of the painting, then you move to another, and then you go back to the first, and then you go back to the second. So you start learning like some some different strategies just you know to be able to paint faster because if you love to do something you want to be able to do more and more of it so you start figuring out ways to you know to be to be able to get it where you know where good grief it takes less than a month the creative mind really starts working well that's you know that's one of the wonderful things about art is that if i did art for a hundred years i would never I, I i would always have the same amount to learn you know, like it's, it's one of the great things. And, and one of the wonderful things about it too, is that whenever, like I paint better now than I do, did when, whenever I started, but the benefit that I get from it is exactly the same. So 20 years ago when I, I was, you know, I, I would have three colors on my canvas and I'd be sweating bullets thinking like, Oh my goodness, am I, I've lost my mind now. <laughs> I've got three colors going, woo. you know, and I'm, I'm in sweats running down my face and I'm trying to remember where I am on the canvas and feel it and touch it, you know? And, I've got the same benefit that I, I do now. You know, I feel just as good when I leave the canvas. I'm going on this little mini holiday. I'm not worried about things while I'm painting, all this sort of stuff. It's just, and I don't know. I love that about art. It's the process that really helps. Where are some of the coolest places that your pictures have been either in a gallery or museum or, or sold? Because, I mean, they've been sold all over the world. Um, dozens of countries I've, I've read. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's gone. It's gone to over 120 countries now, and and actually, we counted that like five years ago. So I don't, I don't know what it's at now, but um, I wish I wish I could go with the art and travel because I have not been to 120 countries myself. But, but that would be so cool. 
Well, you should. Yeah, that that should be part of the deal, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, if you, yeah, if you, exactly. That's what I say. But no, like I, I've, um, we, we went, we went to Holland and we got, we got to meet like the, the pr- prime minister and we were like, I did a, um, a TV thing there where we were giving away some awards and, and um, that, and that, that, that was a lot of fun. That was really neat. We got to go to Japan. Um, you know, um, I, my, my wife and I were, were made cult, cultural ambassadors for Brazil um, where the, where the, the United States sent us down there to, to, to represent the arts for America. And I thought, I thought that was really cool. That uh, was that's a lot pretty of impressive. Fun. Yeah. You know, and I, don't, I thought it was really neat to be a person with a disability to be able, you know, for them to say, Hey, we just want you to go t- talk about art and, you know, and to be able to do that was a lot of fun. And, but I've been able to meet some amazing people like, um, and call people friends that, that I never thought, you know, I felt so alone and isolated when I first lost my eyesight. And I hope that my art would connect with connect me with people, at least with my family and my friends. But it's made it where I've been able to connect with people all over the world. And I've been able to work with, with actors and, and our, what do you call them? Um, athletes. I swear my brain is <laughs> not working. <laughs> Musicians, different people, but, but also like, um, you know, like the first blind, blind person to, to climb ever, Everest, Eric, who is awesome. And the, the number one blind, blind golfer in the world, Jeremy, who's a, one of the nicest people. And I, I've just been able to meet incredible people that I never would have been able to. And, and it's just doing stuff that I love. And I don't know, I, I, I just can't tell you it's, it's, it's a weird feeling because I am happy. Like, I don't, you know, it's, you know, I'm. I, it, it boggles my mind. It really does it, that I'm able to do something I love and I'm able to do it with, with, with people that are my best friends and, and, you know, my wife and, and it's just, it's awesome. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. But it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds but like it's, it's a lot of fun, fun work though, too, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of, one of, one exciting thing I think is to be alive during this time, because, you know, like you said, like, like the, like the technology now is way better than when we lost our eyesight in college. And that's one of the really cool things. Like, like this is a time in history that I think is going to be written down. I mean, you know, if you think about it, like this is the first time because of the technology, first time in history that people who are blind are getting into painting. I mean, there's, there's, there's been some painters in the past who have, who have lost their eyesight or had reduced eyesight and have figured out ways to keep painting like Gauguin, Monet. But then, but this is the first time in history where you have hundreds of people and thousands of people at this point, I would think where we're visually impaired who are blind and they're getting into what, 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 what we've always called the visual arts. Yeah. And that's a kind of an oxymoron there, right? It is. And it's, but it's just showing how much, how much, how much movement that there's been, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, it, it's, I can't wait. I mean, I wish I wish that you know there was some way that I, I could I could like see what what the world is like in a hundred years for for people with visual impairments. Like I know, um, with the first time that I ever gave a talk at the uh, a newspaper that was one hundred years before. Like you know, I was just curious what what you know what 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 was going on in the in the in New York during that time. And one of one of the articles that I was reading online, um, it, it it said it said. It, it was it was it was an article about about disability or something, which was so crazy. I thought, oh man, this is perfect. But but the photo and it actually had like a caption for the photo that they would read it to me. But the photo was of a visually impaired person who 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 was like um, begging on, on the on the sidewalk. So like so like a hundred years from ago, 
the idea of what a person with a disability was, was someone who was like selling pencils or begging on the sidewalk. Yeah. We've really come a long way. Um, my goodness. It's just, you know, it's just, I mean like that we, we have, it's just, you know, in, in the way that maybe like our grandparents would have, would have thought about people with disabilities. I mean, not, I mean, not like in a mean way, but just, just way that the, 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 the culture thought back then was different than what our, our parents' generation was, just different than what our generation is. And my son and, and the kids that are in his generation, they're growing up in a whole different world where disability doesn't mean that you can't do something. It just means you find a different way to do it. And that's just the, the normal way that the young generation is thinking. And I think that is just amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah, it is. Well, something else that's wonderful is your uh, painting, John. Um, I am very appreciative of you helping uh, explain this to me. I encourage everyone to go to uh, bramlet.com and uh, check out the stuff. There's lots of things. You can order paintings. There's all kinds of images and stories. You, you wrote a book. We haven't even talked about your book. Um, oh, yeah. My goodness. <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll do that the next time we get together. But um, is there is there anything people should be looking for when they get to your website? No, no, but you know, but if anybody wants to chat or anything, like we, I, I do a live stream every Tuesday, which is a horrible, terrible stream. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. I've seen a few of those. Those are pretty good. They're they're usually pretty funny and, and fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. So there's no there 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 is absolutely no production value. It's just it's just my wife and I. We're hanging out. We're having fun. Um, a lot of times, other other visually impaired artists will drop by, but but we just chat. And I have to say, during 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 the whole COVID time, that that was so wonderful to have to be able to get on there and just touch base with everybody. But but hey, John, if if, if you ever want to um, if you ever want to paint or anything, so um um I I I I I'd love you if you want to do like that blindfold painting workshop or anything like that. Yeah, just, I do. Just oh man, well we need we, to do that. We can make that happen. <laughs> I like it. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, John. I I really pre- appreciated having this chat with you. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.